Well, I'm hoping to do today, some of you were here yesterday, some of you, we, we picked you up new today, I realize that. But mostly what we want to do today is unpack what we talked about yesterday. So I've, uh, I did a lot of yakking yesterday, more than I like to do. But we wanted to get to a certain point yesterday that would give us today in the six hours or so that we have together to kind of unpack what it is to live. As we started, we started the first of the day saying the whole life of the new covenant is that we would live the loved and that then we would love. The new commandment I give you, love one another as I've loved you. So can't love each other until we know what it is to be loved by the Father. And that's got to be in real practical terms. That's not just theological constructs to me. It's not just a matter of we have a theology about God's love. But in fact, I know the Father's disposition for me as I wake in the morning, as I go through my day, I am aware of Father's love, of Father's presence, of His life in me. And I'm learning to live, as we say yesterday, that mutual interpenetration. The Father is in the Son, the Son is in the Father, and we are in them in the language of John 14 that Jesus invites us to experience that kind of life. So we're not just with God, we're not just near God, we're to live in Him. And that's, that's what the cross was meant to purchase. So we talked about the cross last night, or last afternoon, it was to help us see the cross not as appeasement for an angry God, or as punishment so that God's need to punish is expelled, but in fact the cure. God and the Son, Father and Son, arranging in themselves to take our sin into themselves, and to condemn sin in the likeness of sinful flesh, in the language of Romans 8, uh, made him who knew no sin to become sin for us, in the words of 2 Corinthians 5, so that in Christ the wrath of God as the cure for sin, not God's anger and punishment and that vindictiveness, but God's wrath as God's love that consumes but destroys the object of his affection. So that's kind of where we wandered yesterday. If you missed it, then that's all you need. It was two minutes, so there you go. Uh, what I'm hoping to do today is unpack that. We kind of set up this construct yesterday, which we're going to talk a little bit from. I'm going to review a little bit more on the cross. Some things I didn't say yesterday that I, I, I want to say this morning. And then I said to you, we begin very early with just, you got some questions that you want or insights that you had yesterday as we talked about the cross. Uh, then we'll turn to that pretty quickly. We, t- we, we had this construct, which I think really represents a lot of the language of the New Testament. And we'll see it even more so today. We did it from the prodigal son is where we began this, that there's the younger son is living a life of rebellion, and he's, he goes off into sin and indulgence and ends up in slavery and then finally comes back to his father's house. The older brother is out living in the fields and slaving for his dad, but what we said is neither one of them knew what it was to have the relationship with the father that the father wanted with both of them. They both missed out and basically said from that, there's two ways to hide from God. One is to hide from him and rebellion and sin and all that, and the other is to hide from him in religion, religious constructs of performance and trying to earn God's approval. And, and I don't mean religion just being an institutional environment. I don't mean that at all. I mean the whole mentality. I know lots of people who have left institutions who still live religiously, who still live with this performance and guilt and trying to figure out and earn God and trying to get God on their agenda and using the Bible as a tool to manipulate God, which I always think is hysterical. It totally misses the point to be quoting scriptures to God saying, well, you must do this because your, your word says it does. And, uh, and mostly when I was doing that, anyway, I won't speak for you, I'll speak for me. Mostly when I was doing that, I was trying to get God to fulfill my agenda for my life. And I don't even mean my sinful agenda necessarily, but my godly agenda, the things I wanted to be for God and do for God. And, and either one, it, just, it, it, it is a fruitless endeavor to try to think and live religiously in God. So we're talking about how to live relationally, and the real part of that happening, if, uh, do I still have pins here? I still have pins here. I think the bridge to this, this line I drew yesterday, and we didn't talk much about it, but I said this is the law of sin and death. And both religion and rebellion work in the, in the land of sin and death. It's in, it's in that construct of the soul that sin shall die in a tainted world. And both of these have to do with performance. This is performing well, obviously, and this is performing not so well in the religious construct. But it still has in mind that sense of performance, and I'm evaluated on performance, and my approval comes from performance. And this is, I don't care, I'm going to do what I want anyway, and this is, I'm going to work really hard to try and earn God's approval, okay? And neither one of them rise to the kind of life that we want to talk about here, how to live in this relationship, which as we said yesterday, the access point to that is the cross itself. This is what Jesus said, I'll go to prepare a place for you. 
And the going is the preparing. I'm opening a door through dealing with, and here's, here's the main things the cross needed to deal with that we talked about yesterday, just for review. And we, didn't, we didn't enumerate these quite this way, but one, it had to eradicate shame. If we're going to be comfortable as fallen beings in the presence of the holy God, then what the cross had to do was eradicate our shame, had to deal with our shame so that, in the words of Romans 8, there is there, now how much condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus? How much? None. I don't know about you, but when I lived in religion, the number one struggle I had with other believers who would come to me saying, we just pray for him. There's so much condemnation. There's so much guilt. Would you pray for me? And I'm thinking, why are we praying about this? If Romans 8 is true, and not just theologically true, but pragmatically true, then it would come, it would stand to reason, as I'm learning to live my life in Jesus, there would be how much condemnation in my life? None. It's not something I deal with. It's not something I overcome. It's not something I fight against. It means none. It means I wake up today without this consciousness of shame and sin and feeling unworthy. And boy, God, I'm going to have to do something to make you like me today. I'm not going to have that. But religion, as we said yesterday, religion is a shame management system. It doesn't cure shame. It doesn't want to cure your shame. It wants to exploit your shame to make you work hard. So the group extends its approval to you if you conform to the group. It's addressing your shame. And if you don't conform to the group, then it marginalizes you, doesn't it? Gossip's a great way to do that. And talking about it, these people don't come here anymore, and we're not sure where they are, and they're not loved. And the group extends great approval when you conform to the group, and it gives you great disapproval when you cease to conform to the group. And all that's doing is manipulating our sense of shame. What amazes me about the gospel stories is even before the cross, as you watch Jesus relate to a woman caught in adultery, a woman at a well that's been married five times, now living with a man that isn't her husband, uh, Zacchaeus, the biggest crook in the Jericho village, uh, on and on, the, the people that Jesus engages, do you ever see Jesus exacerbating someone's sense of shame? This is even before the cross. You don't. You see Jesus pulling shame off of people. I think one of the biggest identifiers that you need to know of whether you've got brothers and sisters in this kingdom is if there are brothers and sisters near you who are intensifying your sense of shame, you can take a step back from that and say, you know what, they might be brothers and sisters and just, you know, slow and ignorant and lost in religion themselves. So I still get to love them. But at the same time, I don't have to respond to that attempt to manipulate my sense of shame. Does that make sense? And when you find brothers and sisters who are interested in getting shame off of you, say, hey, what do you mean? God's bigger than this in you. God can take care of this. I think you're getting too much responsibility on yourself. When you hear people lifting shame off of you, then you know, oh my gosh, these are brothers and sisters I can walk with. Because there is therefore now no condemnation. The cross eradicates shame. Shame is not God's tool to change people. In religion, shame is God's tool. That's how religion looks at it. So we don't mind using shame at all. And even that old, I don't think we do it much as parents now because the, the world seemed to get this quicker than Christians did, unfortunately. But that growing up, shame, shame on you. You shame, you bad, you bad. And that's supposed to make kids be better. And, and boy, some of us as parents, because I was raising my kids in religion for most of their journey. I did raise them in a lot of shame-based stuff. And I've gone back to them since and owned that and talked to them through it and and uh, my kids were in their mid-teens about the time Sarah and I started waking up to some of these realities. So we got to go back and talk our kids through some of that. But we did use shame to manipulate. We did use my affection with them based somewhat on my approval of them. And uh, there's a big disconnect there. So we may, we'll talk more about that today. Uh, secondly, the cross had to break the power of sin. So that, in fact, I could live. If, if, if the cross just forgives sin and I'm still its victim and I'm still captive to it, well, what good is that? That's Paul's whole language about this freedom from sin and no longer having to strive to be free from sin. And then everybody writes him or questions him saying, oh, so now we just continue in sin that grace may abound. And Paul's answer is always so, what are you talking about? Why would you want to be forgiven from something you can't be set free from? You can't know Christ. You can't live in Him and not be transformed in His image. This is not about God's okay with sin. He doesn't care. Sin all you want. He's a great forgiving God. No big deal. It's the only way to be changed is to live in that love and to live without shame. And as you learn to live without shame and learn to live in Father's affection, then we'll talk about that more today too. Sin gets displaced. So it's invited us to a new freedom of life in Him. And the final thing the cross had to do was reassert what the garden destroyed, which is reassert our freedom to trust God as Father. 
and, and the cross does that too, which we haven't talked quite about how it does that yet, but we'll get to that. And one of the things we said we'd cover yesterday, Sunshine, I think you raised it and we didn't get to it, um, uh, was about this statement from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because that's the language we use to say, okay, one, that's the language we use to think that God and Jesus are separated on the cross. That's one of the things it does, is that somehow God is not present in Christ in the cross, so that God's a bystander. And as we've heard it explained, at that point of Jesus being sin for us or becoming guilty of our sins, because God can't bear to look on sin, religious rule number 312, uh, God then at that moment of the son's worst tragedy and worst pain and worst need, and the father has to abandon him. <laughs> Sorry, son, can't handle this. Can't, can't bear to look on this, so you're on your own, and walks away. And that's what we get from that portion of Scripture, unfortunately. I think there's something else going on there that Scripture makes clear in a number of ways that that's not what's happening. One, the language, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Where does that come from? Remember? The psalm, Psalm 22 specifically. Uh, read Psalm 22 sometime. It is the most schizophrenic psalm in the book. It's David beginning with, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I've cried out to you and you're, my enemies are over. I'm paraphrasing. I didn't memorize it. Uh, my enemies are overwhelming me. I'm all lost. You're not coming to help me. And I'm all lost, abandoned, forsaken. And I'll never survive this. It's four or five verses of that. Then there's four or five verses of, ah, But I know that's not true. I know you never forsake the one you love. I know you always come through in the end. You always redeem. You always give life. And then he, there's four or five more verses, but not this time. This is the worst. And I've, I've wet my bed with my tears, crying out to you. And you've ignored me. And you're not coming this time, and I'm left all alone. And there's four more five verses of, oh, yeah, well, I know that isn't true either. And so you've got this incredibly schizophrenic moment, which does not this describe moments in your life when you feel absolutely abandoned by God who said, I will never leave you or forsake you. But you're in the middle of stuff, and you're crying out for stuff, and God's not doing the stuff you think God should be doing, and your prayers seem to bounce off the ceiling and on top of you, and you're not getting anywhere, and you feel, have you not ever been there? I've been there. And yet we know God never leaves. God never forsakes. God always redeems. He doesn't do it the way we want Him to do it. I think when Ephesians 3.20 said, God does in us exceedingly and abundantly beyond anything we can ask or imagine, which is one of those promises that people stick on their refrigerator and say, yeah, that's a great one. You know, that, boy, if I'm praying for a two-bedroom house, God will give me a four-bedroom house. And if I'm praying for a Toyota, God might give me a Lexus. And that, we've taken that verse and just absolutely destroyed what it means. Because what it means is when you're praying for something and you think you've got the best motives in the world and you think this is just a very godly thing and God's not doing what you think He should be doing, that's when Ephesians 3.20 says to you, He's doing something exceedingly and abundantly beyond anything you can imagine. And usually what we can't imagine is our own pain and hurt and our own struggle and difficulty. That's what we can't imagine. We can imagine sitting under the palm trees, you know, eating grapes and being fanned in the coolness of the hot afternoon. Yeah, we, we, could do, we can imagine that. What we can't imagine is that God's going to let us go through very, very dark periods as He works out the sin and brokenness in us as he takes us to the end of our rope so we'll stop trusting in ourselves and learn how to trust in him he will do that and we can't imagine that jesus i believe on the cross because what he despised most about the cross remember was shame that if the cross was real if he became sin for us and he entered into the shame of our sin then it would be true that jesus being on the cross could no longer see the father who was right there with him. I think the language of, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, is exactly what is in the Psalms. It is the perception of the Son, not the reality of the Father. Does that make sense? So the Son feels abandoned, absolutely. Feels forsaken. He was tempted in all ways like we are, yet without sin. He knew what it was to feel. Get this. For eternity, the Son has never known fatherlessness. Ever. How did Jesus decide what to do when he woke up on a Saturday morning? Do you remember? How did he do it? Did he pull his little uh, junior Messiah palm pilot and take a look? No, what did he do? I only do what I see the Father doing. Only say what I hear the Father saying. Jesus lived every day of his life with his eyes and his heart on Father. I'm just living with Father. He, he's been like that. for He's been in the Father and the Father in the Son through all eternity. 
Now they're still in each other. I, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. We read it yesterday. God didn't go anywhere. God's not got a little seat in heaven saying, oh boy, I'm going to watch this. This is really bad. Sorry, son. You draw the short stick or whatever. That's not going on. God's in Christ. But when Jesus enters into the fullness of our sin and shame, he can no longer see the Father who's right there. He feels abandoned and he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's what he feels. That's the reality of what he's going to learn to trust in the midst of. And he does trust. The next words from the cross are, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. To the God he can't see, to the Father he still knows. And in the, in the midst of that utter, here you've got a great contrast. You've got Adam and Eve in the most pristine of environments, the greatest innocence imaginable, all the trees, everything God's provided. Eat, eat freely, enjoy yourself. Just not this one. The day you eat this one, you'll surely die. In that environment, Adam and Eve couldn't trust the God who had made them. We'll talk about that more in a little bit. In the end, you've got Jesus in the most despicable of circumstances. He's on a cross. He's become sin itself for us. He's drinking the wrath of God that, as we talked about yesterday, the chemotherapy, chemotherapy, that antidote to sin is being consumed in him. In that whole way, he loses sight of who Father is. And in that moment, this Jesus trusts. Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. And he becomes, when Galatians 2.20 talks about the faith of Christ Jesus, and it's a passage we'll get to later today as well, I think, as we do some unpacking. As we get to that point, we're going to see in Galatians 2.20 that the faith of Christ Jesus is that absolute confidence in Father, even when it makes no sense at all. When I can't see Him, can't feel Him, can't touch Him, when I just stand before Him. Sarah and I, this is a prayer. Sarah and I have prayed a lot on this journey because this journey is, I mean, I, I think it's the best journey in the world. I, I wouldn't trade it for anything. I wouldn't go back to my life before for anything in the world. I love being on this journey, but there are dark days on this journey. When God reaches down into the core of my soul and He wants to rip out of me that which seeks Wayne's approval in whatever environment I'm in, that's not just a pleasant afternoon. I think I'll take this out for you, Wayne. That's days and weeks and months of having your reputation shredded by people you love. And not seeing God fix it, not seeing God change it. And something in you is dying every day. And it is that death to Wayne's need for significance and Wayne's need to appro for approval that God's getting his finger on. That took two years for a big chunk of that to die. I'm not dumb enough to think it's all gone yet. I'm just not that bright. But a big chunk of that was two years. In those two years, people were telling others in the town I'd lived in for 20 years and been a pastor that I'd had an affair and cheated on my wife. It was not true. And before I knew that that was the rumor they were going to use to discredit me, God asked me if I would trust my reputation to Him. Sounded like a great deal at the time. I thought God really loved my reputation as much as I did. I, you know, I missed that little part about Jesus being of no reputation. I missed a lot of that stuff in the Old Testament about Isaiah saying, How long, O oh Lord, should I share these things? And God says to Isaiah, Until everyone in Israel rejects you. Now, there's a calling. Put that in Bible school. When, when am I done? You're done when everybody hates you. That's when you're done. See, I missed all that stuff. And God said, Wayne, would you trust your reputation to me? Of course I would, God. And then the rumors start. Wayne's had an affair. Wayne cheated on Sarah. That's why we're doing the things we're doing to Wayne. And I'm going, oh, crud. So four times in two years, I'm writing a letter to the mailing list in my computer to clarify the lies that are going on about me. And I had a great brother who I'd read them to. And he would say, oh, man, that's a great letter. I said, isn't it? He says, it is. He says, you're not going to mail it, are you? Of course I'm going to mail it. It's time for truth. Truth is what needs to reign here. And he would say, you know what? You told me a few months ago you were going to trust your reputation to God. This doesn't sound to me like you're doing that. And I'm going, no, no, I've done that for a couple of months. <laughs> Obviously, God's inactivity demonstrates that he wants me to take care of it now. And he goes... I don't think so. He has a little grin on it. I don't think so. But if that's what you got to do, that's what you got to do. And I hated that. I, oh, I'd go back and I'd, finally God would just make clear to you all a variety of things. The last one was the worst. But I just, I could I didn't mail any of the four letters I wrote over two years. But I can tell you, many times during two, those two years, 
in hearing the rumors come back to us by various ways, whether it was Sarah hearing it in the store or me hearing it with an unbeliever I've been sharing God with, we would many times, and I'm saying more than a couple of dozen, Sarah and I would end up in our bedroom at night just holding each other, standing by our bed and just crying our eyes out. And we'd, we'd pray this prayer. Father, we don't know what you're doing in this, but into your hands we commend our spirit. We're just trusting you with the whole deal. Told me not to. I'm not going to. I'm going to trust this all to you. I can't tell you how wonderfully God sorted all that out. My reputation in that town, it's amazing now. Even people that spread the rumors have talked to me since saying they knew they weren't true when they were spreading them. And uh, so God took care of that end. But you know what? That's not even important to me anymore. What God got to in me through that process, I would say 90% of what drove me in quote-unquote ministry before this time about 10, 12 years ago was Wayne's need for significance and Wayne's need for approval. It was all about me. It wasn't about you. It wasn't about people I was touching. It was about me. Through those two years, God ripped that out of my being. It's the darkest two years of my life. I can tell you Sarah's story. She's not here, so I won't tell you the details. She went through something tangential to that. That wasn't really her pain. She went through some family things in her life that were the darkest, most brutal, brutal days. Her parents dying in our home uh, with cancer. Lies being told about her husband. Our income and ministry opportunity had been stolen by best friends of 15 years. Her sister was suing her dad for money. And then when her dad died, sued Sarah for money. That, that's all this deal. Sarah went through the darkest days of her life. I was coming out of mine at the time as she was plunging deeper into hers. I now kid people. If you knew Sarah prior to 1994, and if you know Sarah post-94, you would swear I've had two wives because they're not any way close to the same person. Not anywhere close. And Sarah was amazing. The pre-94 Sarah was amazing. It's the woman I fell in love with. It was the woman I married. It was Beaver Cleaver's mother. It was the ultimate domestic, the ultimate submitted wife. She just never contradicted anything I had on my heart to do. It was she meals on the table, house spotless, kids immaculate, yard beautiful. It was all that. Played piano, led Bible studies. Did so, none of it was real. It was Sarah fitting everybody else's expectations of her life. And Sarah, at 94, comes crashing down, realizing, I have no idea who I am. I've met my mom and dad's expectations early in life. I've met yours, talking to me, through this part of my life. I have met the church's expectations of me as a quote-unquote pastor's wife, and I have no idea who I am. And God changed her. She's a very different woman now. She's a better woman. Wouldn't trade her for the pre-94 Sarah. Now, there were times in this transition I would have. <laughs> there were times in this transition, quite honestly, I wasn't sure we were going to get through it. And I would even say to Sarah, I'd set her on some night, I said, are we going to get through this? She said, what do you mean? I said, is our marriage going to survive what we're going through? She said, yeah, I think so. You don't? I said, no. Because see, because her life had so revolved around my expectations for her, which I didn't I don't think in any way consciously put on her. I was very nuts about us being one, and every decision we'd make, I'd say, honey, what do you think? And she'd, she'd give me back what I wanted to hear, and I would say, I would be suspicious of that. I'd say, is that how you really feel? Let's talk, blah, blah, blah. And she'd say, yeah, yeah, yeah. But see, what was going on in Sarah was, who am I to offer any other? I'm a nobody. I got nothing. So even though I don't agree with what Wayne's talking about, who am I to disagree? And Scripture tells me to submit anyway, so it's just easier for me to say, yes, honey, and just say whatever I wanted to hear. But in every bit of that, Sarah's denying a little bit of the woman God's made Sarah to be. She's being diminished by that in the language we used yesterday. Understand? So she becomes, yes, externally, a wonderful person. Everybody knew Sarah. thought she was fabulous. And everything. her whole life was in order and blah, blah, blah. Inside, she's dying. And no one knows. And she's got no friends that reach into that because it's a place she doesn't even show to me. And then when God started dealing with it, I was the enemy. Because I had been part of the expectation she had conformed to. So when I would try and pray with her through it, my prayers were just another way to manipulate her. Oh, it was nasty. <laughs> I would sit there and say, I finally stopped praying for her. She said, I don't know what to do with you, woman. I don't want to be your enemy. I want you through this. And she said, I'm going to get through it. It's between God and me. Just give me some space. And that was, that, was, that was it. That was really it. When my daughter got married five years ago, we had people come to our wedding, uh, our daughter's wedding, who hadn't seen Sarah since 94. 
They would pull me aside and say, what have you done with Sarah and who's that woman you're with? And I would look at him and say, isn't it true? She's a totally different woman. She is the woman God has made her to be on the planet. She's discovering that. She still is. And uh, it's changed her. It's changed the way she relates to people. It changed the way she relates to us. Now we're making decisions. We have discussions about everything. Sarah has an opinion about every conceivable thing we work through. Our family discussions now take a lot longer than they ever took before. Because yes was easy to say. And I'm not sure. And here's why. It takes a little longer. But now I'm not in love with an illusion. I'm in love with a real person. And what God shows her and God shows me, and as we sort through those together so that we mesh and become one, what we do together is greater than anything I would have ever thought of on my own. I wouldn't trade this Sarah for anything. Sunshine, do you have a comment? Have you used Sarah as a part of the rap? Yep. Yep. Yeah, I kind of blew that, didn't I? Yeah, yeah. Uh, Sarah got stung, and uh, you know, did she die from the bee stings? And I got another woman, so actually, I'm just lying to you all. It could be true. But <laughs> the truth is, uh, at that point, Sarah, we, we didn't know how allergic Sarah was. She'd had some reaction to thing. She did have a reaction to the bee sting. It was a mild reaction. We were able to drive to the hospital, and just as we got there, her breathing was getting really ragged. And yeah, she's fine. So yeah, we that, that that's good. But it was because uh, the point of that story was obviously her willingness to put her life at risk for the health of her son and not even think about it. It was, it was never a thought running to him, I'm allergic to bees. I probably shouldn't be doing this. I should stop and wait for Wayne. It just never dawned on her. And, uh, yeah, so, yeah, she's fine. <laughs> and now we've got these killer bees in our house, and I'm not there. So I, and Sarah said she killed six of them in the house last night. She's like, darling, would you go stay with Julie till I get home? I don't want to come home and have you get stung in the middle of the night or some crazy thing. So, but. Sarah's not as worried about it as I am, so there you go. But yeah. So when God seeks to change us, and we're going to talk about now, how do we live in this reality? And the reality is we've got, to, we've got to come through the cross. We've got to let the cross deal with our sense of shame. I can walk you to the actual spot on the planet when six months after my hearing the teaching of the cross for the first time, through this whole season of just praying and asking God to give me a revelation of the cross and give me, and I don't mean to say this was just an experience because it wasn't, but it was the culmination of that whole six-month journey and praying and asking and reading and listening and thinking through and meditating on it. One morning, I was walking down a road, and, uh, and I could walk into that spot now where I knew. It's, 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 it was a little dirt avenue in a field then. It's now a, a paved road in the city. But all of a sudden, the reality of this came home. If I never wrote another book, never taught another sermon, never counseled another life, never led anyone in the world to Jesus ever again for the rest of my life, this Father would not love me one bit less than He loved me in that moment. And that everything I'd been doing to earn God's approval was absolutely not needed. And I can remember, I, I can remember just the sheer joy and delight. I felt like that little Abba kid on his dad's lap. All I've been working for for 44 years, unnecessary. I always was loved. The joy was learning to live loved, not trying to earn the love that I already had. And that's, as I say, I think that's always a revelation that God has to give us. When Paul says to the Galatians, before your eyes, Jesus was clearly portrayed as crucified. He's not talking about they went through a teaching on the cross. I said yesterday, what I, the words I'd say to you, the words on these recordings, the, you know, they fail me. The, a lot of that's in He Loves Me. The whole living love, the moving from appeasement-based to affection-based across, it's in that book. People have read that book, and that book will not change you. If that book opens you to Jesus in a way that changes you, that's great. But He's the only one that does the changing. And people write me and say, oh, your book changed my whole life. And I write them back and say, we both know that isn't true. We both know something in there ushered you into Jesus, that's fabulous. And you've got a shot on something you didn't, fabulous. But this is a work he does. And if it takes six months, if it takes two years, I had a woman I was talking this way to in a group in Massachusetts. And this woman came up to me afterwards. And she's in her 40s, um, mid to late 40s somehow. And, and she would just, she, want, she was saying, could you pray for me? And I said, yeah, what do you want me to pray about? And she just couldn't figure out how to say it. And she finally just kind of teared up. And she said, you know, I really can't say. Can you just pray for me? I said, yeah, I would be happy to pray for you. 
I started to pray for her. And in the course of praying for her, I just had this image in my head of a five-year-old girl dancing through a meadow with Jesus. And so I just prayed for this gal, and I said, God, just help her. Like a five-year-old girl, just dance in a meadow with you. She just busted out in huge sobs. And they weren't good sobs. They weren't like this was healing. It was like this was painful. And I stopped and let her collect herself a minute, and I said, what, what just happened there? And through tears, she said, this is what I didn't want to tell you, she said. I hear you talk about God's love, and I really want to believe it. I mean, I see it in Scripture. I, I know it's true, and all, but I don't, I don't live it. She said, when I was five years old, my older cousin took me into a meadow and raped me. And she said, every time I get close to God's love, I think of that. How could a God who loves me let that happen to me? She said, so what are you talking about? A five-year-old girl dancing in a meadow. And I said, obviously, I had no idea what that would evoke in you. I said, I think what God might be saying is he wants, to, he wants you to free you to live with him beyond that experience and that somehow God's love can contain it. I said, I think God's love gives purpose to it. God, God allowed it for a higher purpose. I just don't find comfort in suffering at that level. We live in a world of chaos. And we are sometimes victimized by the sin in others, and we sometimes victimize folks by sin in us. That's just true. People get hurt. Despicable, tragic, horrible things happen. But what God's love is God's ability to crawl into that situation and somehow redeem the person beyond it. Doesn't make sense of it, doesn't fix it, but it heals the brokenness, it heals the hurt. And I just said, I don't have to tell you other than let's pray, let's just ask God. And I said, just every day until it happens, just ask God. And I said, I don't mean that to be an incantation, so if I can skip a day, God's not going to do it. I don't mean that. But as often as you think about it, just say, God, I give that to you. Would you, be, would you teach me how to dance in the meadow of my brokenness? That's kind of how we said it. Six months later, I got an email from her. And she said, Wayne, I'm so discouraged. She said, I prayed. I've sought God on this. I pray what you've said. You know, most days I'm remembering to say something like that. And I'm not any closer to it than the day you were here. Is there any hope for me? And blah, blah, blah. See, and I, I know the way God works enough. I just wrote her back and I just said, you know what? It's just, it's not quite done yet. Just keep on this. Someday you'll get it. Someday I'm going to, I said, I can't tell you if it's two months out, two years out. I, I don't know. But the only thing I can say is, he is the healer. And until we get to him and just keep coming, and what am I doing wrong? I said, I don't know that you're doing anything wrong. When God's going to heal something that deep in a life that you think that's just a, you know, a two-hour deal. For her, it was an eight-month deal. Two months later, I get an email from her, same email, and it's titled, I Get It. So I'm going, ooh, this could be good. I click on it in 124-point font. I get it, exclamation point, exclamation point, exclamation point. Wayne, I want you to know I've had a breakthrough with God's life. and I, Boy, God has somehow now resolved that pain in my life. and res- I know he loves me. I know I have the Father's affection. And I've, I, just, I just cried when I read it. I just sat in my computer and went, so cool. And she has lived on in that freedom. Now, did God wait eight months? Did it take eight months worth of prayers? Did, was God not counting? Let's make sure we get everything right. No, we said yesterday, God's not counting. What it meant was there was a lifetime of stuff God has done in this woman, including part of what I was there, including the prayers. After all that time, God is doing the deeper work. God doesn't heal the outside of the cup. God heals the inside of the cup. God's not interested in slapping a Band-Aid on where you hurt. He's interested in working out in you the source of that pain. And then we see it when it surfaces. We're going, oh, well, he did it. Well, he didn't do it eight months later. He was doing it the whole time. Eight months later is when it finally surfaced and we could see it. Two years, I went through this brutal thing on approval issues in my own life, and it was painful. And I didn't know God was working on approval issues. I didn't know that's what was going on. I just knew that every day I was being lied about and every day I was hamstrung from defending myself in the way I wanted to. And it hurt like crazy. I do know the day it broke and it was over. And I look back, now I know what it was about. I didn't know what it was about then. It was brutal. But now I I get to live in the freedom of that. I got an email the other day from a senior pastor telling me I was a heretic and deeply deluded and I it just was a cute note, so I put it up on my blog, and I kind of put on my response to him. And I've gotten the most incredible emails from him saying, oh, wait, I'm sorry, this must devastate you. And I'm going, gosh, I never thought about it devastating me. Because 12 years ago, it would have devastated me. 
Now I live in the freedom where that kind of thing doesn't. It's just I feel more for him and what God needs to do in him than I feel like, wow, I've been slaughtered by this guy. or something. And I, I just, I, it's a wonderful freedom to live in. So that's part of this process. Okay? So that's what we want to unpack, and we've almost taken the whole day talking about it. So let me stop a minute and just ask you, are there things from the cross yesterday or anything I said yesterday about living in the life of the Father that you'd want to make sure we talk about today or you'd want to ask a question about or make an insight about? Let's start there. Anybody? Yeah. The question here was whether Jesus felt more pain from the physical wounds that were part of the cross experience or from what was going on spiritually inside of him. Well, I, you know, I, I don't know that Scripture makes a clear point one way or another, but I think what we do know is what he despised, what he despised most was the shame of it. So I would think, in my understanding of it, as I would extrapolate from what we talked about yesterday, I would think the physical pain was nothing compared to becoming sin for us, for the wrath of God to consume sin in the Son. I mean, it's expressed to some extent by the physical things are also expressing that. He is... He is taking on himself all the anger and vengeance of a world that hates righteousness. So he's, he's enduring that. And I think that's part of the wrath of God consuming the sin in him. So I don't know it's important to parse out where the pain came from most, but I would have to think in the long run what he most despised about all of that was knowing what you and I live in every day, which is shame and separation from his father. And if father's the one giving him the cup of wrath. Father's the source of the healing, but so also the source of the pain. When you, I watch my friend go through chemotherapy and the pain and hurt that that causes. I mean, that, that is poison flowing into his body. He hates it. It is also the cure for his disease. It's also that. And the doctor who's giving to him loves, it, loves him more than maybe the rest of us who would save him that pain and also save him the healing. So what we get from the cross is sin was a real, sin and shame were a real disease that God needed to heal. He wasn't just going to wave his little magic wand and say, it goes away. Now we're going, this is real stuff. Sin is a real deal. Shame's a real deal. Wrath is a real deal. And the way God uses that and did it in the Son to consume sin in the likeness of sinful flesh, that's all very real deal that cost him more than we could ever conceive a God would pay for us to have that kind of life. I think he does feel the excruciating pain of all that. I do. And uh, out of that, he shows us, hey, sometimes you're going to feel like God isn't anywhere present. Doesn't mean he isn't. And doesn't mean at those times. That's, that's the time I encourage you to just lean into him a little more. And what, what religion teaches you is that pain in your life or blessing in your life isn't that part of the reward punishment system. So if you're doing well, then God rewards you with good things. And if you're not doing well, then you're going to go through hurtful times. If that's your construct about pain, and that is, quite frankly, what we get that from is Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy is all about if you do good, you'll get good. If you do bad, you get bad. You keep my covenant, I'm going to be good to you. Keep your enemies far away, bring your rains in the seasons and all that stuff. If you don't follow my covenant, then I'm going to bring your enemies in and pestilence and drought. and so Do good, get good. Do bad, get bad. So we bring that construct into the reality of the New Testament, which has now changed. It's not performance-based. But if you live with a performance-based God in your own thinking, then when you hit your worst trial, where's God? He's back on the other side of the trial again. See? If trials are punishment for not getting performance right, then at your worst moment, God's the furthest person away. And what Jesus is showing us, the reality is, no, at my worst moment, God's right there. I may not see him. I may not have any idea what he's doing. And there's often days when that kind of, God, I have no idea what you're doing in this. I have no idea. But I'm with you. I'm yours. I'm in this. Whatever you want to show me today, show me. I'm going to walk with you through this. Now, when, at my worst moments, God is the constant companion. In religion, you're getting what you deserved. The friend that helped me write the Jake Colson book as a, as a hospice chaplain, and he was dealing with a woman dying of cancer. She'd been a believer for years, and uh, almost her whole life, and she was dying of cancer. And now he asked me one time, he said, how many believers do you think die in peace? I said, well, I would hope a lot. He said, almost none. He said, because religion is all about control, and death is the ultimate loss of control. You're not controlling anything. This woman in her 70s, 80s, dying of cancer, She's got four daughters who are trying to take care of her. She's horribly depressed. She's been a godly woman, elder in the fellowship they'd been part of her and her husband. 
Now she's got cancer. She's dying. She's depressed. And, and they can't figure out why she's so depressed. She can't either. And one day Dave comes to the house and they're saying, ask her about tithing. He goes, what? We heard her the other day in the room. She was just screaming about tithing. She's screaming something. So ask her. Maybe that's a key. So he went in there and she's on the bed and she's very near death. And he says, you know, the daughter said they heard you saying something the other day about tithing. She said, yes, I now know why I have cancer. She said, this is what's bothered me so much. She said, after all I've done for God, why would he give me cancer? And I've, it is just, it has devastated me. And then I, I now have figured it out, she said. In 1942, I had four young daughters at home. And my husband was overseas in World War II fighting in Germany. And she said, one of those months, I couldn't tithe. I didn't have enough money to tithe. And, and, I, and feed my girls. So I kept the tithe, and I fed my girls with it. And now I know this is why I have cancer. And Dave's just the best person in the world you want to say that kind of stupid thing to because David just turned to her and said, Oh, my, my, you really think God would do that to you? And it just led to a discussion that absolutely transformed this woman on her deathbed to understand a God she had missed for 70 some odd years because she lived with a God of performance and that eventually catches you at some point it will catch you this incredibly liberating life I mean this is the way to live in God's love and be transformed is incredible somebody else anybody else anything we've talked about yeah great at this point I was asked a question by one of the folks about Scripture saying, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Specifically in light of circumstances in the Old Testament, such as Achan, a man who he and his family were executed at God's command for taking some of the spoils from the conquest of Canaan, which God had forbidden them to do. How does that sense of God's vengeance fit into some of the things I've been talking about here, about God's love? Sure, I understand. Absolutely. Um, well, the vengeance is mine, I think what you're referring to is Romans 12 scripture. And it really is asking us not to take vengeance on other people because God will take care of things, which is to me a real different idea than what the Achan story is. Uh, so I think what God is saying, listen, don't settle accounts because I'll settle accounts. He's the judge of the whole universe. He'll get things right. And I, I think we do from the Old Covenant and our displaced religious notions about the Old Testament we come out with things that are they're kind of strange like uh, I'll hear believers in meetings and some prophetic person will say judgment is going to be visited on this city or that thing and we should pray and hold off God's judgment and then the uh, boy you, you never get people praying more fervently than when they're praying back God's judgment because like nobody wants God's judgment and yet if you read the Psalms the very thing that's causing the trees to clap their hands and the hills to dance is what? God's coming to judge He's coming to judge the whole world why are we so emphatically praying against the very thing that caused creation to delight God? Because judgment to us means the mean old God's coming to whack stuff, and we might get whacked too. Judgment in the view of the Old Testament is God's coming to set things right. God's coming to make right what is broken, to bring justice where there's injustice, to bring provision where there's poverty. God's coming to make things right, and there's nothing about judgment that ought to terrify us. The Achan story, when you get into the Old Testament, God's shaping a people. And, and God was so emphatic about them not taking one thing from the land of Canaan, but destroying it all. That's what God was nuts about. And the reason He was nuts about it is because if you take it, it will defile you. And so it's God's trying to preserve a people and trying to make Achan a demonstration of that preservation. Now, God didn't often do that kind of thing He did with Achan. Achan very, I mean, they, they took some spoils of war and He hid it in His tent. And they went out another battle and, and they lost. And guys, guys died because Achan had dishonored what God had asked to do. So they go through this whole deal of casting lots right through the whole tribes of Israel and down to the families and then finally got down to Achan. And uh, he comes clean. He confessed, yeah, I, hid, I took some, I saw the gold, I liked it, I took it, hid it in my tent. And so it was him, his whole family, everybody was, was executed as a way to, to atone or to make right what was, what was wrong, what he had done, what had displeased God. Now, God sometimes does some incredible stuff like that. I mean, Ananias and Sapphira is a big moment in the New Testament. It's a huge moment. 
And I don't think we know really all that goes on there, quite honestly. Our idea, well, they lied, God whacked them. Well, if God did that, who would be around today? I mean, Billy Graham said, you know, if God didn't start whacking a few people, he's going to have to apologize to Ananias and Sapphira. And I, you really go, man, he did it. Yeah, he did that. And yet you've got Peter doing this stupid thing in Galatia where he's hanging out with the Gentiles until the Jews show up. And then he kind of, you know, does this racist thing and runs over to hang out with the Jews. And Paul gets up and chews him out. God doesn't do any whacking there. So some we have to step back and say, here's how we know who God is. We don't know who God is by conclusions we make about the way he acts. When we were all growing up with our own kids, wasn't it true that our parents did things that we would say, gosh, my parents hate me, or my parents would, because they wouldn't do what we think they should do, or they would do something that we just thought was mean. And, but when you're a parent and you end up doing those things, you realize, doggone, sometimes there's a higher purpose here that kids can't figure out. I'm sure Amy, my granddaughter, doesn't understand when we tell her no about trying to get to the hot stove. You know, just no. And she wants to touch it, and she cries because you're telling her no, and she doesn't get it. So... I think part of this has to be chalked up to the fact that we're not, ta- we're not dealing with a God who is like us. This God is not like us. He's absolutely loving. And yes, you can watch things God's do and misinter- what God does and misinterpret who He is. That's why God sent the Son and said, He is the exact representation of my nature. When you see how Jesus treated the woman at the well, how Jesus treated Zacchaeus, how Jesus treated James and John, the, the sons of Zebedee and the zealots that they were, as, as Jesus taught Mary, treated Mary and Martha in Bethany and Mary Magdalene and others, now we know who God is through the Son. Um, people who look on my life, I like to think this is, this is true, I think this is how we get really distorted about God sometimes. People who look at my life, you could read everything I've written, listen to everything that's on recordings of one kind or another, and you would know a lot about me. But you really wouldn't know me unless we spent time together. And there are people who really literally have read just about everything I've ever written, and I'll go be with them. And go, You're not at all what I expected. Because there's a, there's, there's a deal about knowing about, and there's a deal about knowing the person. If you watched my life from a distance, you could swear at times like this, that guy's an extrovert. That guy's out there meeting people, doing stuff. That's, that's great stuff. If you saw me at home, I literally, I can never leave my house for a week when I'm home. I've got, you know, writing stuff, and Sarah's out doing all kinds of good stuff. So she comes and tells me what's going on in the world. My car leaks. I record my mileage when I go somewhere, and I'm telling you, there, I just go, yeah, I haven't been anywhere in a week. What's wrong with me? I've never thought about leaving the house. Never had a reason to go anywhere. Um, you could swear I'm an introvert. I'm really neither. I'm a person, and none of the labels ever really fit all of us. I think the joy of living this life is you get to know people as individuals, and that's good. And we get to know that God doesn't fit our expectations. So there are moments when God, for reasons I don't know with Aiken, I think it's pretty clear. I don't want you guys keeping stuff. And so, yeah, it's going to cost Aiken and his family for you guys to get it because I don't want you keeping stuff. They did anyway. He told me he didn't want to make treaties with the people. They got duped into making a treaty anyway. So, and that entanglement of the Canaanite way of life continued to harass Israel with false idols all the way down until Christ came. So, God's agenda there is pretty clear. With Ananias and Sapphira, um, I, first of all, I, we, we think it's judgment. God killed them because they made a mistake. And, you know, you can't lie to the Holy Spirit. He'll whack you. And that's how we come out of that story. Religion wants us to come out of that story that way. I think there was something God had to do in Ananias and Sapphira that we don't know about. I don't necessarily think it was their entrance into hell that day. Very well could just be, you know what, you're going to be a better blessing to the body up here than down there. It could be that. We don't know that it's God punishing them in sin as just removing him from the family in a way that they were going to corrupt it, their lives were going to corrupt it. We really don't know the conclusions about that. But I think what, where I come to settle out this vengeful God verse, is that God is absolutely just. God's going to resolve all things in himself. That this God, as I see him in Jesus, and as he asked, the, the metaphors he chose for our relationship is Abba, Father to a little boy. It's friend to friend. For Jesus, it's bride to bridegroom. It's, it's God that took those intimate metaphors and said, that's how I want you to think of my life, your life in me. So those are the ones I live with. There, there are times in that, yeah, God does things that just absolutely beyond. And that we make whole theologies about them because it proves our performance-based needs. So we've had those embellished over time. So God is just 
I think most people is the kind of God you want about 20 miles away. If I need him, I'll call him. But you know what? I don't want this guy looking over my shoulder. We sang that little song. I think it's the worst song to ever teach kids. But because you could point to body parts, they thought it was a great song for Sunday school. Oh, be careful, little eyes, what you see. Be careful, little eyes, what you see. For the Father up above is. And I always said looking down in love. But you know what? That sounded like divine cop to me. That sounded like, okay, God knows what I saw. God knows what I'm thinking. God knows what I'm Little hands are doing. Oh, crud. It doesn't make God endearing. The, the God Jesus talked about, Jesus made this Father endearing. Jesus didn't come threatening people with hell to get saved. Most of us got saved because we figured that was better than going to hell, not much better. Religion needs hell to thrive. Religion needs something worse than you have to sit through to get you to sit through its thing. I think hell is absolutely important to religion. Jesus didn't come threatening people with hell. He didn't dismiss its reality. But see, here's what Jesus knew. Father is worth loving for himself. If I can introduce you to Father, he's worth loving for himself. We don't believe God's worth loving for himself. So we have to give people a worse alternative to get them to come to him. Sure. Excuse me while I break in again. We had a discussion here for a little bit about these competing views of God from the Old Covenant being uh, a severe God, the New Testament being a kind God, and uh, the conflicts many people feel with that. And that kind of provoked a discussion about the Scriptures and what I think that's uh, worth putting here. I think most of us are give, have given a view of Scripture, if I can pause and talk about Scripture for a moment, that really is beneath what the document is. We, we take it, and we even talk about it like it's an owner's manual to your VCR. So when you have a problem, you go find something to read, or, or we treat it like a legal book. When you ever read legal opinions, which I do now because of my work with bridge builders, legal opinions look exactly like sermon texts, because you've even got the little numbers with the colons. You have paragraph, page 24, paragraph 12. And you look at that and you're going, how have we interpreted Scripture legalistically? We go in there to find rules. So we'll take this little bit from here and run it with this little bit from here and we bring these things together and, and make all kinds of outlandish conclusions about God when really Scripture is a story. It's a story of God revealing Himself in human history through Adam, through, through Abraham, through, through Noah, then Abraham, and then Moses, and on and on it goes. And each, each generation is picking up some new realities about who this God is until the last word is spoken in the Son. And as we said yesterday, the last, the, the culmination of Scripture is not Scripture itself. It's not the book of Revelation. The culmination of Scripture is the person of Christ. It's, it's the Son Himself. He's, he's what it's all about. It's to lead us to Him. Because we don't know that story, we look for individual proof texts. I've come to just quiver around proof texts because you can really prove anything by pulling a Scripture from here and a Scripture from here and a Scripture from here, as we even talked about some of that yesterday. I'm nuts about us learning to see this as a story of God's unfolding self. And the reason why most people don't enjoy reading Scripture, and a lot of people say, I don't read Scripture, I don't get anything out of it. Well, if I gave you the Lord of the Rings and you had never read it before, and one day you opened it up and read page 33, and then a couple of days later you opened up and read page 176, and then a few days later you opened up and read page 12, and then a few days later read, maybe read pages 45 through 60, over time you're going to be saying, this is a stupid book. I don't get anything out of this book. Well, of course not. None of us read a novel that way. It's a story. The story begins book one, page one. I have read the Lord of the Rings trilogy now so many times. I can literally sit down and pick up the... I can pull the Lord of the Rings off myself, turn to any page I want, and just start reading, and I'm in the story. Because I know what happened before. I know what's going to come after. I got the story. I think that's what God wants us to do with Scripture. And I think to do that, you don't begin with Genesis, because most people never make it through Exodus, and if you do, they don't make it past Leviticus, because that'll kill you. I really say, how do you start? The, the, to read the story of Scripture, I think you start with the Gospels, and you sort out who this Jesus is. Look at Him as a person. Look how He treats people. Don't just read His teachings, as important as they are. Get a sense of who He is. And then, how the early church embraced the post-resurrected Christ. So, the book of Acts is just, how did they, live, how did they sort out this living a whole new way? No longer performance-based, land of sin and death, accountability, conformity, institutional thinking. How did they live relationally in God? And you don't come out of the New Testament with a sense that the early church started structures like we call church. 
You get the sense that these were loosely knit groups of people in various communities who knew each other, and people kind of moved between them sometimes and brought some connection. There was no official organization. We call it a council in Jerusalem in Acts 15. But if you actually read the story, there's people that saying, you must be circumcised to be a Christian. There were people saying, no, you don't have to be circumcised to be a Christian. They got together with those that were the mature believers in Jerusalem and those that were visiting, and they hashed it out. And they came up with something to say and recommend to the churches. But it wasn't a council in the way we think of councils. There wasn't officials there to make it. This was a living family that was learning how to follow Jesus. And then now you get to the letters of Paul. And what was he saying that made sense of things? And John and Peter and the writer of Hebrews, whoever he was, and James. And now you're getting a sense of, wow, this is who God is. This is how we walk with him. Now go back and start Genesis. Watch this God unfold himself. Through the course of human history, watch men and women misunderstand who he is because of things he did instead of understand who he was by the things he did because now we know in Christ the exact representation of his nature. You do that, and you do that enough over time that then the Bible does become the story. I don't think it's the VCR manual. I really don't. I don't think it's the legal document to resolve our theological disputes. I think it's the story of God's revelation. It is inspired to its core. And every, I read it every day virtually. I, mean, I don't read every day like I've got to do it, but I, I'm in there continually because this is, God's, this is the way God thinks about everything. So, yeah, I'm in it. I'm in it because this is the voice of the God I know. And uh, all the more fun because I know him outside of the text that I also enjoy him in the text. And I think we get to get a new fix on that, and we get through some of the things like this. But I love the question because... I think we do grow up, as we said yesterday, the schizophrenic son of an abusive dad. It's the good God or the vengeful God. And there are times, yeah, read Revelation. There's some stuff coming. There's fire. This wrath still has to consume this age. It does. For those who are in Christ, you'll never know. The fire's coming. It's, that's what Jesus is saying about the, the whole hen and the chick. The fire is coming. Crawl under me. It's going to go right over you. Run out there and save yourself. It's gonna, you're going to get alive. But it's got to come. How else does God purify the world for himself? How does he make a new heaven and a new earth if he doesn't rid us of all the other stuff? Anybody else? Did that answer your question? I know it's not a... Yeah, I know it's not, a, I know it's not an answer that says this is how we diagram God now. And I, I don't think I can answer that. I think the more we get to know him in Christ and look back on those other events, then we say, yeah, those were God too. But that was coming out of his love and affection, not... I just lost it one day and whacked Aiken, which is what most of our anger was in parenting. You know, we, we lost it one day and yelled at our kids or did something that we later wish we hadn't done. And it, we think of that as God's vengeance, and God doesn't ever lose it. He just doesn't. But he's very deliberate about what he does, and he's very serious about what he does in redeeming this world to himself. But what he wants us to know is, you'll enter into my life through my tenderness. So that's what God wants us to know. We can be safe in him as this Abba Father, as safe as Amy is that's my 18-month-old granddaughter, for those of you who weren't here yesterday. As safe as she is on my lap, that's as safe as I am with Father every day. And she's absolutely safe on my lap. Nothing's going to hurt her. Nothing's going to get to her. I, and that's how God wants us to enter into who he is. But we're still going to hurt ourselves. We're still going to go through tough stuff. But that's not a lack of his tenderness or love for us. Okay. Anybody else? Okay, let me talk about this for a minute. I'm going to take a break so you guys can do whatever we need to do. And then we'll come back and do a little more for lunch. But... Um, the reason I give you this, I'm not going to teach you through this. This is not an outline, so if those of you thought it were, sorry. I, I just want you to see a process here that I think I, I've seen in my own life. And the phrases underneath are little bits of discovery that were part of my aha, getting it kind of moments. Um, the first one, for instance, on the front page is, is titled Living in Father's Affection. You have a father who loves you more than any other human being on this planet ever has ever will. That's not a whole lot of value to you theologically, and it's not meant to be. I hope that's value to you relationally. As you get near this father, if you don't know that father yet, and I, I want you coming. I want you getting, one day I want that kind of reality to be yours, something you get, not something you just heard me talk about or someone else talk about. Nothing you do today will make God love you any more, and nothing you can do today will make God love you any less. God's love is the constant thing in your life. That's constant. That means God approves everything you think, do, or say? Of course not. God doesn't approve everything we think, do, or say, but his love is there. Um, I love this next one. Heard this when I was in uh, Wales a few years ago. God is not disillusioned with you. 
because he had no illusions about you to begin with. I just love that. When God's breaking things into my life that's 42, that I'm thinking, man, why didn't I get this at 22? Because God knew I was 40 years thick. He knew it would take that much knocking, that much loving, that much screaming from me, yelling and kicking. He knew it would. And he kept loving me through it, and I kept seeking him in it. And uh, for us, it took 42 years. For the lady I talked about, I was in her 90s. Now, what I want you to see, I'm not going to go through all these now, but I, I, the reason I gave you this is because there may be things here we'll want to talk about. You may have read some of these last night going, ooh, I want to know what you meant by that. But there really is a continuum here. I think that Scripture makes really clear. Number one, if you're going to live this journey, the first thing you've got to do is sort out what it means to live loved. If you don't know at the core of your being that this Father is an Abba Father for you today, then to me there's nothing more important to be praying and thinking about than, God, can you make that real to me? This I want to live in. Now, how's God going to make that real to you? You're just going to have an eye-opening moment in the trees one day? No. It's going to be in the real circumstances of your life, whatever you're going through. It might be job-related, might be spouse-related, might be kid-related, might be neighbor-related, might be just your own pain and psychosis and things that are stirring deep inside your being. It might be your sins, temptations, and failures. God's going to use the very real part of your life to make himself known in you. This is a journey you go on. And I, I, every morning, God, what do you want to show me today about yourself? I want, to, I want to see you. I want to live loved. Because until I live loved, none of the rest of this works. The next thing we're going to talk about is trust. The next thing on this chart is then growth in trust. And I'm really talking about this right after we come back from break because I think we got the whole faith thing messed up. We turned faith into just another work. If I can have enough faith, then God will do what I'm asking him to do. I think that's nuts. Um, but I think all of, all of what, if you get the first page, my point with this little document is if you get the first page, everything else on here flows naturally from it. So these are not other things to get. These are discoveries that will come to you. When you know how much Father loves you, you will know how to trust Him. When you know how to trust Him, you'll know what real freedom is. Freedom is not... God giving me all the approval I need because I have these deep approval needs. And so when I'm not getting approval from people, I'm praying, oh God, like, like David does so much in the Psalms, oh God, let my enemies be ashamed and bring glory to me and my, you know, and David's got all that praying to change the, the issue on the outside, not praying the issue on the inside. When God sets you free from your need for approval, that whole shame thing, now you get to know what freedom is. Because you're not being manipulated by everybody around you who's rewarding you or not rewarding you based on whether you conform to what they want. Now you get to live free. And, you get to, and then the next thing is you get to love and share his life together as a family. When I, the, the reason why I don't think that it starts with church is because mostly when you get a bunch of people together who are going to be church, our, our thought is we're going to share religiously together a religious life. And that's dead. I don't know if you've experienced this. I've experienced this not only in home groups I've been a part of. I've been, I've been in home groups all over the world. We're, we're starting a house church or a home group, and we're going to get together and we're going to do this. And you watch people come into the room. And you think, maybe having a meal first or whatever, bringing food. People come in the door talking, how you doing, what's going on. You're like, oh, I'm sorry to hear that. There's just all this energy going on. And then whether you eat or do whatever, somebody, somebody goes, okay, well, let's start our meeting. And all that energy goes who knows where. That's right. Somebody opens in prayer and death begins. And there's this, uh, yeah, okay, so I know, yeah. And there's this long meeting of, okay, well, somebody's got some choruses, so we sing that. Yeah, we're listening to see if God's saying anything. And then, you know, prayer requests. Oh, gosh, we're going to pray for everybody's agenda in the room that may have nothing to do with God's agenda. But how can you not pray for somebody who says, you know, pray for my brother. He's in Iraq. I don't want him to die. Well, of course, that's, yeah, I understand all that. The rea- what are we praying? God, only let the pagans die in, in Iraq? And if, if, we, if we are praying that, then do we really believe that we as God's people who already know Him, aren't we in the better position to die and go be with Him than those who don't know Him yet? Why do we want them dying? We don't even believe our own theologies. We just don't live them practically. And then somebody's going to share something from Scripture, we're going to try and have it done, and it's going to be very forced and very stilted, except for the two people who really enjoy that kind of thing, and they, they get to mix it up while the rest of us go, God, I'll be glad when this is over. And then somebody finally mercifully closes in prayer. And then all that energy comes back into the room, doesn't it? People on the way out the door, you can hardly get them to leave because people are talking and they're sharing things that are going on in their life. You might see a couple of people praying over there because somebody just shared something. Didn't come out in the meeting as an official prayer request, but they're over there praying and some real stuff. There's life going on. 
And we try to contain a meeting. Why is that? Because God's not in meetings? Absolutely not. I think God can be in meetings. I think we're still meeting religiously. I still think we, when brothers and sisters who are living this relationship get together, oh my goodness, you talk about a gathering, that, that is just, there's no boring in that. There is no, gosh, can't wait till this is over. Because we've learned not to live by our agenda. We're not in a meeting because somebody's got this angst that they've got to be the next teacher, in the, so they've got to bring a teaching every week and bore the rest of us to death. It's none of that because we're living together, learning how to share God's life and be God's kids. This thrives. And then the last bit of this, we'll talk about all this through the course of the day. That's, I'm just giving you this because this is where we're kind of going to wind up in the next few hours we have together. Then this happens at the end, incarnating His love in the world. When you sort out how God loves you, and you've learned to just share life with other brothers and sisters without putting hooks in each other, without manipulating people to get what I think I should get from them, just loving them for who they are. And when we learn to love each other, now we're ready to live dangerously in the world. Because now we know how to love the Zacchaeuses and the woman at the well, and it's not about changing their sin. It's about introducing them to our Father. And that, this to me, this is how we get to live free. And all of it, yeah, body life, tons of body life. Opportunities to share God in the world, tons of opportunities to share God in the world. I rarely have a conversation in the world today that Jesus doesn't come up. And you know what? I never bring him up. Only if the Holy Spirit says, bring me up. I don't. I'll just get in conversation with somebody staying in a Hope Depot line trying to check out. And uh, we'll be talking about what they're doing, projects, whatever. And somehow, something about church. I, my roofer the other day, he had something on his car that looked like a Jesus thing. And I said, uh, I said, oh, you believe her? He said, uh, oh, that. He said, I don't go to church if that's what you mean. I said, oh, I don't either. That didn't bother me. I said, uh, what's going on? He said, oh, church is so boring. And it's already going on this whole thing. And we had the most incredible time just talking, just saying, you know, it's about Jesus, isn't it? He said, what do you mean by that? So I got into, you know, how you love him and follow him. He said, you know, this is what I thought it should be. He said, I never heard this before. So he was roofing the house. I gave him a copy of the Jake book. He said, I haven't read a book in 10 years. When he's back the next day, he said, I read three chapters of that book last night. That's incredible. Um, there's not a, I mean, that's just when you live, and it's not, I live with this agenda. I don't go into, because one of the greatest joys of this that we'll talk about today is being able to live agendalessly. I get to share more about who Jesus is with a world living without that agenda than I ever did trying to manipulate conversations to get to him because I thought that was my responsibility. 